Today we want to talk about uh, developing a creationist chronology. So one of the questions that comes up so very often in the whole debate of of creation, you know, did God create the world? And one of the things that we talk about in Christian circles, at least, is the age of that creation. And if you're a listener to this podcast, and um, I mean, you know, this is something that you know uh, we take a we take a pretty firm stand on, and we teach about from time to time. And the what we want to try to do is like often we look at the the theological um, implications for this things like death before the fall, and, and we'll touch on that stuff. A little bit today, but today is going to be a little bit different take than I have ever uh, brought to you on this, and it's uh, it's cool because it's a continuation in our series of Faith, Form, and Time by Dr. Kurt Wise, and this is going to have us looking at developing a creationist chronology. If you do happen to have a copy of the book, we're between pages 45 to 47, looking at some of the different themes that he mentioned. I'll expand on them, of course, with some thoughts outside of what he mentioned as well, but we're just going to kind of follow his, his basic framework because I think this is something from the book that's very interesting. You know, people do wonder, why should we be young age creationists? Why does it matter? And what I'm going to attempt to show you here in this um, episode is, is if we look at the details present in the biblical text, then there are some specifics that should push us in that direction and should compel us to take this young age creationist view. So to sort of start along in this journey is the days of Genesis 1. Okay, this is the most logical starting place. I mean, there are entire books written about this one subject, believe it or not. Um, Hugh Ross, an old earth creationist, for example, has a book called A Matter of Days. Okay. And Ken Ham, I think, has one as well. Um, he is a young earth creationist, of course, and I think his might be called In Six Days, but I'm not exactly sure. And while these books, of course, broach more topics, you know, they are focused on, yeah, what what are the nature of these days of creation. Um, what did God mean when he said that there was day one, there was day two, there was day three, and there was this, this week of creation separated out into separate days. Now, before we go too much further on this, uh, I do want to point out that I have multiple uh, episodes of this podcast that have been recorded in the past that actually seek to move away from such a reliance and such a dependency upon the length of the days of creation. I think that if you work backwards, um, what you end up finding is is that you can you you'll get to a very reasonable chronology, um, specifically a young age creationist uh, chronology. Um, working backwards from the time of Jesus before you even get to anything that has to do with the days of creation. It just so happens that when you bring the days into it as well, then that opens up some other questions. But most people, including Dr. Wise in his book here that we're covering, start with the issue of days. And so that's sort of where we are going to begin. So in, in the context of the passage uh, itself, you actually have the word day um, defined for you. Okay. And this is the thing that's always sort of puzzled me, to be honest, uh, about the debate on how long the days were. Okay. Based on the language that is there and, 
you know, pretty generally accepted, you know, Hebrew understandings of things like darkness and light, evening and morning and things along those lines. It's relatively uncontroversial to say that the word day is defined in the passage itself a couple different ways. Okay. It is defined as the daylight period. Okay. Of a, of a day. Okay. So morning, the 12 hour period of basically morning of daylight. Okay. Then it says evening and morning were the first day. So there it is defined for you. Okay. The evening and the morning and nobody, again, in ancient Hebrew cultures, nobody thought that when we said evening and morning, that we were talking about epochs of time. Okay. This is not analogous for something else. Okay. It's not metaphorical. That's not how they were thinking evening and morning. Okay. They were talking about the 24 hour period. Um, and, and for them, the evening was the beginning of a day. That's why it starts with the evening. Okay. For Hebrews, it was the beginning of the day was in the evening. And then it went through the morning of the next day that we think of. And, and that is defined as a 24 hour sun rotation day in the passage. Okay. Evening and morning were the first day. So that's the second definition. And then the final time that the word day is defined is in Genesis 2-4, where it says, uh, these are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So that word day there does appear to be referring to a, there, and there are different opinions on this, but it seems to me that it's referring to a period of time and that would be the week. So this is where you say something like, well, back in my father's day or back in the day, something like that. It does seem to be that sort of use of the word. And again, in the passage, it's being defined for you. It's talking about the week of creation. Like I said, a couple different opinions on that, but that seems to be the most reasonable take on the passage. So we have three definitions, right? We have a definition that calls the that week the day the Lord created. Then we have a definition that says the, the daylight period is a day. And then we have a definition that says the evening and the morning were the first day. So if you take that, and you take the fact that we have six of these days, and then on the seventh day, God rested, we have a week, okay? We have a week of creation. Now, some people ask about the seventh day. That's a debate that we're not going to get into on this particular episode. What people will do is they will take a passage from Hebrews, I believe it's Hebrews chapter 4, where it talks about the the rest of God, and it draws analogy back to the rest of, the, uh, of day seven uh, of creation. And strangely, uh, very strangely, people use this to argue that the seventh day is continuous, okay? That the seventh day just keeps on continuing on. But but it doesn't say that. And I mean, I wish I had, you know, I mean, I wish it was easier to, to kind of make an argument one way or the other here. Um, the, the fact is, it just doesn't say that, okay? You have to, you have to insert that. That's eisegesis. You have to read that into the text. It never says that the seventh day um is continuing on that that seems to be a really absurd um way of thinking about the seventh day okay like th that we would still be in the seventh day of god's creation rest today i mean that's not the point okay yeah we are in god's creation rest but that god's rest extended is not the same thing as saying the seventh day extended and the the reason or at least the primary reason that seems to be, um, you know, deployed for that argument is that the seventh day doesn't have a conclusion as the other six days do. Um, but I think you can just as easily explain that by the fact that other Hebrew scholars have taken this route, um, that there was no need, like the narrative was ending. It was ending. Okay. There was no need for the six day, um, 
narrative to have a, a conclusion in the same way because, again, it ended. It was rest. It was done. Um, the other days have a conclusion, and evening and morning were the first day, evening and morning were the second day, et cetera. The others have that conclusion because they're keeping the narrative moving and they're going forward. But at the seventh day, that's the end of it. There's no reason to do that. It shifts topics and, and zooms in to the events inside of the garden specifically in Genesis chapter two. So the reality is, is you could explain it just fine uh, either way. And I think it's a strained um, sort of definition to say that the seventh day just continued on. So moving on from, from, from the days is then the question of a week. So why, why use a week um, to talk about creation? Is there, a, is there a reason why God would have done that? You know, there is no sort of solar phenomena or anything in the, um, in the physical world that we point to and say, okay, well, this is where we get a week from. Okay, the concept of the week is not something that we get from an astronomical body. It's not something we get from the specifics of the rotation of the earth, et cetera. Okay, it is a essentially a made up, if you want to, if you want to call it that, it is a made up framework. This framework comes from the um, standard set forth by the creation week. Okay, that is where this comes from. And God set the pattern for human living in the very fabric of creation itself, right? This is one of those, this is one of those questions that a lot of people don't think of, but it is. The, the concept of a week depends on the um, biblical worldview uh, in that regard, okay? And it's made very specific and very explicit in Exodus 20, 11, when um, God is explaining, or you know, through the Ten Commandments, it, it is being explained to to the Hebrews about why they're going to work for six days and rest on the seventh. It draws analogy to the creation week. That's the pattern that God set forth, and for that reason, that is the pattern which we should abide by and which we should live. And that pattern has been ingrained into society for um, for millennia now. Okay, and so why a week? Well, the reality is. God could choose to do it any way he wants to. Okay, God could have created the entire thing instantaneously, all right? In fact, that was one of the arguments that um, Augustine made. I believe it was Augustine early on, um, that he actually thought creation was, uh, was instantaneous. And um, so, we, so he believed in a 6,000-year-old earth, but it was a little bit different uh, – the way he he framed it, and so so we have to take these things and like and, and like think about them, right? Like again, why a week? There's there's nothing. There's no again. Nothing is nothing external to us other than the command of God causes us to obey this framework of a week. God could have made things instantaneously. He chose not to. Um, and and this is made evidenced by when we do see creation happening, miracles happening. Um, within the context of each of those days, he sees things that um. You know, we seem to see that there's immediate response to the command of God. You know, God says, let the earth bring forth grass, you know, and, and, and grass comes forth, this sort of thing. Um, the, the language suggests that when God said it, it actually happened. The miracle language that gets used all throughout the Bible suggests that when God says it, it actually happens. So he could have just brought the whole thing into, in, into being, you know, with the snap of the, you know, proverbial finger um, or metaphorical finger, whatever. And um, that's not how he did it. He seems to have followed this pattern of a week. And so there we have a week and we follow weeks on through today. So we have a week of creation. 
So the next sort of place that we want to go here is to look at from the week of creation to Abraham. And this is definitely one of the most contested um, portions of scripture, honestly, that there is. But I mean, especially when it comes to this uh, debate. What we have in these chapters is a, a look at the early development of civilization, of life on earth, right? We have cities being established. We have, you know, woodworking and even ironworking and, uh, you know, the building of instruments. We have mention of all of these pieces of the early development of civilization uh, as we know it. And there are two places, specifically in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, where we have genealogies, okay? Genealogies in the Bible are, a, of course, a wide topic. And there are multiple different kinds of genealogies. There are questions as to whether genealogies are open or closed. That is, whether there is um, gaps in the genealogies or not. You know, do, do they skip generations? Are we talking about actual descendants, like 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 children and fathers, or or you know, are we jumping generations? Talking about grandfathers, are names inserted, are names left out? These are all questions that that folks who look at biblical genealogies are seeking to answer. And what has happened, and uh, doctors uh, Jason Lyle and uh, well, Doctor Jason Lyle and, and then Tim Chafee have a book called Earth, Old Earth Creationism on Trial, where they go into this issue. And um, and 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 one of the things that they talk about is how a lot of the thought around genealogies and evidence from genealogies that we find later in Scripture, even even in the New Testament, sometimes that thinking is applied sort of retroactively to the Genesis 5 and 11 genealogies, and it's likely not sound to do so, okay? We have to take the evidence of these genealogies on their face and use them to actually promote the, uh, their, you know, to actually evaluate our thinking. Now, um, another route uh, that some have gone is to compare these genealogies to the what we know as the Sumerian king lists, okay? The Sumerian king lists. And these king lists are exactly like what they sound. They are a list of kings. And often in these lists, you have dates that are just wildly extrapolated. So in these biblical genealogies, we have people living for hundreds of years. And that feels weird to a lot of people. Understandably so, you know, in, in, in modern times. Now, you had people living for thousands upon thousands of years in these Sumerian king lists. And, and so we have people who, like William Lane Craig is one who does this a lot. He draws some comparisons and analogies between these king lists and wants to say that um, the biblical genealogies seem to follow some similar thinking and therefore we should not regard them as uh, being literally true. And the reason why people want to go down that route is because if you do regard these genealogies as being closed genealogies that are literally true in what they speak of, then you are very, very, very hard-pressed to avoid the conclusion that the Bible teaches a age for the earth that is uh, young. So let, let me give you some of the, the thought work from here um, from Kurt, uh, Dr. Weiss himself. So he says this, quote, genealogies are usually only marginally useful for chronology purposes. A list of names, even if it contains a complete list of fathers and sons in the proper sequence, provides only the number of generations. This can be translated into actual time only when the average generation time, which is the average age of the parents at the birth of their children, is known or guessed. 
information that is rarely provided in any genealogy. He continues, The genealogy that is most useful for chronology is one that provides the age of the parents at the time of the birth of their children. But this is uncommon among genealogies, both ancient and modern. In fact, it's pretty much, you know, this is me breaking in, but it's pretty much non-existent. Um, continuing on, it is interesting then that the genealogies of both Genesis 5 and 11 do provide the age of the fathers at the birth of their sons, exactly the kind of information we need in developing chronology. Since the words of Scripture are both accurate and economical, the structure of these genealogies suggests a chronological purpose, close quote. And, and so there seems to be reason a lot of people uh, in creationist circles call these, and for good reason, chronogenealogies, okay, chronogenealogies. It's just amazing. You you can't we, – we can't just look over this. Like, do you see what I'm saying? People just gloss over this issue. And I'm like, if you're going to take the words of Scripture to be, as Dr. Wise said, accurate and economical, even in the least, when we're looking at these genealogies, it really does seem kind of strange that there is a very specific kind of information that that we need in order to glean chronological in order to glean chronological details from a genealogy basically nowhere in the ancient world do we have a genealogy like this except for except for the two places in scripture where one would be necessary in order to bridge periods of time okay genesis 5 and genesis 11 it's absolutely incredible, okay? So, and it's the exact kind of information that we need. So it just seems strange if we're not supposed to take these seriously, that we're not taking these seriously. It's also, so once you get into the time of, of like Abraham and, and Jacob and Isaac, you know, these characters are more historically palatable to a lot of people. Um, and, and, you know, because there's lots more actually written testimony about them and, and things of that nature. So it's um, uh, it was interesting. I, I was re doing my regular Bible reading. I'm, I'm going to forget the passage off the top of my head, but hopefully I can explain this uh, well enough. Um, I was doing my regular Bible reading and um, was looking at, I believe it was uh, it was Jacob when he was having a conversation with, of course, his son Joseph. Um, and uh, the you know the events of the story of Joseph. I don't have to rehash them here. But there was a conversation that uh, it might have been uh, Benjamin. Um, uh, I can't remember if it was Jacob or Benjamin or, or who said this specifically. Oh, it was Jacob. It was Jacob who said it. Who, who said it specifically? And what he was talking about is how even though he was of old age, like at that time he would have been like 120 or 140 or something like that. He made a comment in passing that was very, very interesting. And the comment that he made was along the lines of, "Yeah, I might be old, but I have not yet attained unto the generations of my fathers." So what he was saying is that that Jacob, a person who is like again, three generations within what most people consider to be historically like A-OK, -okay, okay, no matter what view on creation you take. Even three generations after, he at least believed that his, that, that his fathers, which is a word that it, it, it's talking about more than just Abraham, okay? The word fathers is a generational term that means your ancestors typically in the Old Testament. It can be used of just a father, but in this context, commentators do seem to agree that it is used of, of later or, or earlier, rather, ancestors. And so what he was saying is, yeah, I might be old, but, but, but my ancestors, they lived a lot longer than I did, okay? 
That's what he was saying. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means one of two things. At the very minimum, that means that he believed that his ancestors did live for the hundreds of years that we seem to um, have uh, evident to us in, in the Bible. Um, so he definitely believed it. Now, maybe, you know, maybe in some way it was, it, it was wrong. Okay, maybe he was wrong somehow. You, you would have to bite that bullet. But he definitely believed it at minimum. And at, at, at most, what I think it's really trying to say here is, yeah, this is how it actually was. He believed it because it was true. Okay, so he, he believed it one way or the other. Then the question is, was it true or, or not? Uh, and so I just find that to be very, very interesting that there is there was no question upon, you know, later um, characters in the Bible of how long these people did truly live. And if those ages are right, which the ages, this is what causes people really to contest those genealogies because you have people living for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, Methuselah, you know, 900 plus years. So the reality of the situation is that if these are, if, you know, if, if the genealogies are true, then those ages are right. And, um, and that's troublesome for some people. Troublesome or not, it's what the Bible seems to say. Okay. Now we're not going to go through all of these. I actually wrote a post on this. Um, it's called, did God give us meaningless genealogies in Genesis? You can go to my blog, steveshram.com and actually read that post. And I lay out this argument a little bit more in detail there. Or of course, if you have the book, you can, you can just read it. Basically what he does is he goes through and he actually calculates the, um, the, the, the dates and the words in the genealogies. Okay. And if you do that using those numbers, again, he used the Hebrew text numbers, a calculation of the genealogies leads to about 1656. So 1656 years that elapsed between creation and the flood. And then you've got about 342 years that elapsed between the flood and the birth of Abraham. Okay. So where does that put you? That puts you about 2000 years. Okay. From creation to the time of Abraham. Okay, the next place you have to go is from Abraham to Christ. Now, this is a pretty, you know, well-established timeline here. This is very uncontroversial, um, supported by other historical uh, facts and data as well. It suggests that about 1,000 years existed from the time of, or elapsed from the time of Abraham to Solomon, and then about another 1,000 years from the time of Solomon and to the time of Christ. And then it should be even less controversial to say that from Christ to us, of course, it's been about 2,000 years. So, Taken together, this gives you a history for the earth of about 6,000 years. Pretty amazing when you think about it. Now, it, with all of that groundwork laid, okay, there's one big important question that you have to wrestle with, okay? And, and this is the question. Can discrepancies with conventional chronology, hundreds of thousands of years to millions of years of earth history, etc., be reconciled against this backdrop of the days weeks, and then the years elapsing between these different big periods of time. Can, can these two things be reconciled, the biblical timeline with the historical conventional timeline? I, I want to read you a pretty lengthy um, uh, excerpt of text here where, um, I mean, it's, it's bullet points here in, in, in the book, but I think it'd be very, very instructive for you um, to sort of lay out these differences in chronology between the days, weeks, and years that we have presented in the Bible versus uh, conventional uh, chronology, and this is why. I mean, again, this is really laying the groundwork here for why, uh, why to be a young Earth creationist. Okay, one Genesis one claims that the Earth came into being before the Sun. Compare Genesis one one and one fourteen through eighteen. Fruit trees before the sea creatures. Compare Genesis eleven and uh, excuse me, Genesis one eleven to twelve and one twenty to twenty one. 
and flying animals before land animals. Compare Genesis 1, 20 to 21 and 1, 24 through 25. The conventional old age chronology reverses the timing of each of these events, right? So it puts sea creatures before fruit trees, sun before the earth, land animals before flying animals. That's a problem. Two, Genesis 1.30 suggests that all the animals before the fall were vegetarians, whereas old age chronology suggests that there was never a time when all animals were herbivores. Number three, old age chronology suggests that death, disease, and suffering preceded the appearance of man by hundreds of millions of years. This seems to be counter to numerous biblical claims. For example, God's description of the creation as being very good, Genesis 1.31. The strong association between man's sin and animal sacrifice in Romans 5, and the description of heaven in 1 Corinthians 15 as being free from the curse of death that came with the fall of man. 4. Scripture indicates that man was derived from dust, Genesis 2.7, and not from animals, as argued in old age chronology. Five, scripture indicates that Adam named all the animals, Genesis 2, 19 to 20, something that would not be possible in non-biblical chronology because so many thousands of animals became extinct long before Adam came to be. Six, Eve was created from the side of Adam, Genesis 2, 21 to 22, and not derived from a population of pre-humans as suggested in conventional chronology. Seven, According to Genesis 2, 10-14, a river flowed out of the Garden of Eden and divided into four rivers, three of which were the Gihon, the ancient name for the Nile, the Hittichel, the ancient name for the Tigris, and the Euphrates. The rivers currently known by these names are not connected to one another now, and in conventional chronology were never connected to one another. 8. According to Scripture, there were no thorns or thistles before man's sin. Genesis 3.18, whereas old age chronology would have these things preceding even man's appearance by millions of years. 9. Old age chronology would deny the long lifespans of pre-flood and early post-flood humans as recorded in Genesis 5 and 11. 10. Scripture tells us that all the land animals and birds were represented on the ark, Genesis 6.17-20. Whereas the old age chronology would suggest that thousands of species were extinct long before humans arrived on the scene and could not have possibly been on the ark. 11. The Bible claims that the flood of Noah lasted for more than a year, Genesis 7:11 compared to 8:13, and covered the entire surface of the earth over the highest mountains, Genesis 7:19, whereas old age chronology suggests that there was never a global flood on this planet. 12. Finally, Genesis 11 tells us at a time when all the humans on earth were united in language and tower building, God introduced a number of languages to force them to spread across the earth's surface. In old age chronology, however, humans capable of building cities were never all located in one place, and human languages were generated one by one over a long period. And he summarizes this way, old age chronology and scripture cannot both be true, and they cannot be reconciled. The time argued for in old age chronology is thousands of times longer than that indicated in biblical chronology. It is only with the rejection of old age chronology in its entirety, not just the age of things, but also the actual events of history and their order of occurrence, that the biblical chronology can be accepted. And that's it. That's what it means to develop a creationist chronology. All of these links together, they all work together to point towards one truth, okay? And that is that the earth is young, Creation happened exactly how the biblical record states it. And there's no 
reconciling the the views otherwise. It's just not going to happen. All right, that's our episode for this week. I hope you really enjoyed it. I hope this was helpful. A little bit more, you know, diving into some of the specifics of things that we normally do, but that's good. That's a good thing, and I, I appreciate any opportunity we get to do that. Hope this has been a, a helpful one for you, and I, I you know, love to hear from you. If you uh, like this podcast, please consider leaving a review. If you're watching on YouTube, please consider leaving a comment below the video. I would really uh, appreciate that, and I can't wait to talk to you guys on the next episode of the Bible Nerd Podcast.